Good to see everybody this morning. Um, again, if you're a visitor here today, welcome. I uh, just want to warmly welcome you for joining us today. Uh, we uh, here at Mosaic Church, it's our practice uh, to, to preach through the Bible. And so uh, we've been working through this whole summer um, a, a number of the Old Testament Psalms. And so today we're going to be in the book of Psalms. If you have a Bible, you're welcome to turn that on or open that up. Uh, we will have the words projected for you. So if you didn't bring a Bible with you today, uh, they'll be available to you there. Uh, we are in Psalm 132 this morning. Uh, our series will end in a couple of Sundays. Um, we've been doing section, the section of the Psalms called the Psalms of Ascent, which is identified in our numbers in the English Bible 120 through 134. So uh, two more Sundays. Um, just to kind of give you a heads up where we're headed, uh, this, this series will end at the end of September. And uh, I, I try to plan series out a little bit in advance, kind of so I know where I'm going. But uh, I, I, I change things a little bit because conveniently, October, um, October has five weeks in it. And so that's odd um, a little bit. So there's five weeks in October. And this year marks actually the 500th uh, year anniversary of when the Protestant Reformation began. Uh, if you didn't know that, in 1517, Martin Luther, all of that kind of stuff. If you're not familiar with that, we'll catch you up on that. So uh, marking the Protestant Reformation are five really pinnacle truths called the solas of the Reformation. And so... You know, that's part of our tradition as a church, and so I'm going to preach those five weeks on those five topics uh, using the gospel of John and the words of Jesus. And um, so just so for those of you that care where we're headed, that's where we're headed next. But today we're looking at Psalm 132, uh, the lengthiest of the Psalms of Ascent we've looked at. So we've got some work to do this morning. Uh, but before we read the text, um, I want to put a picture in your mind. Um, most of you are familiar with um, a building ceremony, like a, a groundbreaking building ceremony for perhaps something that, that's new. Um, usually it starts and ends in two very predictable ways. It starts when a handful of executives come out in their suits and they get like gold shovels and they go out and they go to the, the plot of land to take pictures and they, they kind of break the ground and then they you know, quickly leave for, for the real workers to come in and make this thing happen. But that's kind of how the, the ceremony begins. And then it ends, fast forward six, nine months, whatever. It ends when those executives come back all of a sudden out of their offices, suited up. And they are ready for pictures in front of the ribbon with the big scissors, right? Open the building up. And it kind of, it's the, the, the picture of the shovel and the ribbon is the, the beginning and the end of the ceremony. And, and as I was looking through this passage, it really, it reminded me of that because this psalm kind of gives us a beginning product to a fulfilled end kind of picture, a beginning to end thing. And, and I really want us to see this passage really in light of what it would have meant to, to the original readers, uh, the Israelites, um, but even more so to the, the current readers, you and I, as we look at this passage and its fulfillment uh, through the work of Jesus. And so uh, let's, let's look at Psalm 132. 
Um, it doesn't identify an author, but most scholars think that this was Solomon who wrote this, King Solomon. And so there's a lot of reference to David, who was Solomon's father. Um, if you don't know, King Solomon was, he was kind of the general contractor, uh, so to speak, of the temple project for the Israelites. And this is the context in which this psalm was written. So Psalm 132 for our hearing this morning. A song of ascents. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard it, we heard of it in Ephratath. We found it in the fields of Jar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we come now and we, um, we need to hear your voice through the scriptures. Uh, we believe that your word is inerrant, it is infallible, it is inspired by the very breath of the living God. And so, Lord, we come now to listen to you. Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um. I don't think I've shared our engagement story quite yet, or our, our lack of engagement story, better yet. Um, Heather and I have been married now. We're going, oh man, I should have done the math. This is year 14 for us. Um, and when we were young and in love and getting ready to move towards marriage, um, I really wanted to give Heather a, a great engagement story. Uh, you know, you want to have that one where you can tell the grandkids about, you can tell all your friends about, and you can, you can really just go to town. And so um, we were living in Phoenix at the time, Heather and I were, uh, doing school and life, work, and uh, I had planned that summer to propose to Heather. And at the time, um, big screen um, engagements at sporting and music events were all the rage. And so I decided that was going to be our story. 
And if any of you, if any of you know Heather, um, you'll know big screens and lots of attention are not her thing. And so against my better judgment as a young 21-year-old man, I said, that's how we're going to do it. So we were going uh, to a, a, a Dixie Chicks concert. Um, we're going to a Dixie Chicks. I'm that kind of man. I will go to Dixie Chicks. And um, so we go to Dixie Chicks, and I had, I had been trying to talk to the concert venue and try to figure out, like, how, how do I make this happen? And they really had alluded, like, we had talked a little bit, but really I didn't get a straight answer. I think it cost money, and so I wasn't really interested in committing that much. But, um, but I had requested during one particular song... I don't remember what song it was, that, that, that it would go up then. Like, I, like the Dixie Chicks are really going to do this in the middle of their concert. I don't know. I was naive. But I had, I had picked this one song in which I would then, you know, she would see it on the screen, and then I'd ask her to marry me. Well, the song played, and I was sweating bullets, had the box ready to go. I didn't have a jacket on, but, you know, wherever it was, cargo pockets or something. Um, had the box ready to go, song plays, nothing happened right? Like nothing, like anticlimactic. So I start to just really get stressed out. And I'm thinking, okay, it didn't happen. And I've got to make this happen. So the very next song at a loud, hot, crowded concert, I just start whispering sweet nothings into Heather's ear. And I'm telling her all these things, this engagement speech that I had. And she looks at me and she goes, what did you say? And so I just put the ring on her finger. It was total choke, choke story. I totally choked. I put the ring on her finger. She didn't know what was going on. Finally, I think she figured it out. We went outside. I clarified the scenario. I told her, <laughs> I told her what happened. I told her she said yes. It was like, that was the scenario. Um, and it was, it was in that moment of, of silliness now. I think we kind of got a story, according to your laughs. Um, but it was in that moment of that promise in, in all of its wacky situations that actually it really helped Heather and I get through a season of life together in Phoenix. Um, lot, we didn't know anybody in Phoenix. We'd only been there for, for not very long, a little over a year. And we were really just going through some things. And we knew we were moving towards marriage. And we, didn't, we knew it wasn't quite time yet. And, um, but it was that promise that I made, that, that commitment that I made in that moment that really carried us through the, the, the wilderness of engagement and towards marriage. And um, today's song is all about a promise. Um, it's all about a promise that God has made to his people. And we'll see today how he's kept the promise. Um, but the psalm was originally written to people who would have had very little confidence that this promise would have come to fruition. It would have been written to people who were very uncertain about their relationship with God and in their role in the world. And so that's who it's written to. And my suspicion is that that is us. Like we are the people of the Old Testament who have suspicions about our relationship with the Lord and our role in the world. Today, I want you to be really just instilled with this deep sense of confidence that God has made a promise to you and that God will keep his promise that he's made. 
Here's the big idea I want to communicate. I want you to see that God's promises will always stand because God's son is already sitting on the throne. Um, I mentioned it's a long song, so we've got some work to do. I want us to walk through the passage. Um, so there's, there's four things that I've drawn out of the, the text this morning, the song, and that I want us to see, and they're all around the promise, okay? So I want us to look at the nature of the promise, and then I want us to look at the need for the promise, and we're going to look at the foundation of the promise, and then the future of the promise. So if you're note takers, the nature, the need, the foundation, and then the future. So let's get to work. Um, the nature of the promise, looking primarily at verses one through five. Um, this song is actually a meditation on an Old Testament passage. Uh, the Old Testament passage is tucked away in the book of 2 Samuel. Uh, it's in chapter seven. Uh, we're not gonna read that, uh, but this by and large has everything to do with 2 Samuel chapter seven. Um, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, in verse 5, God asks David this question. He says, will you build me a house to dwell in? And he commissions David, who begins but does not complete the temple project. Um, the, the purpose of the question is that God wanted to have permanent presence with his people. God wanted to move from being a home renter to being a home owner. Um, he wanted a place physically where his presence could fully dwell and his people would have access to him. Um, David, as the psalm suggests in very clear language, was very committed to the project. Uh, it was through hardship uh, that he would endure through this. It says that he wouldn't go to bed he wasn't going to sleep. He wasn't going to slumber until he found a place for the Lord. Now, why? Why is this house so important? Well, the reason it's so important is that God's presence was temporary everywhere else they had been. We're going to tap into this in a minute. But the nature of the promise was that God would be with his people that God made a commitment to be with his people and the building of the house or the temple was the foreshadow of that promise being fulfilled. So why did they need the presence of God? Well, let's, let's go ahead and quickly move on to the second thing that I want you to see is the need for the promise. Um, we, let me make a statement and then I'm gonna flesh it out in our own lives. Um, you and I, as people, were made to be in the presence of greatness. It's how we were designed. And um, let me show you how that plays out. Have you ever wondered, as Americans um, who this particular Sunday are so uh, thinking about uh, this afternoon full of professional football, some of you are, um, I'm not going to fully comment on that, but have you ever asked yourself, what is it about professional athletics that is so engaging to us? Like, these are young men and women in some sports. These are young 18 to 22-year-olds who go to play a game, 
And we are just so invested financially and emotionally and relationally. Why? And the reason why is because you and I were made to be in the presence of greatness. And so, you know, Odell Beckham making a one-handed grab on a 70-yard pass is great. It's phenomenal to watch. And it taps into the way God wired us to be in the presence of greatness. Uh, on another note, maybe none of you even knew the football season starts today. Um, you know, why is it that we are so obsessed um, with stars, people with money and influence and power and fame? The reason why is because we love to observe greatness. And we think that the Kardashians or whoever, take your pick of reality show, are great. We think that they have an influence that you and I don't have, and so we will watch them frequently. Uh, fill in the blank. Fitness, um, our own desire for fame and success and power, all of these things show us that we were made to be in the presence of greatness. Now, here's the problem. None of those things will ever really fulfill what we are looking for. Like, no football game, you know, no level of athletic fitness, you know, no amount of money or fame or power will ever tap into what we were made for. And the problem that the Israelites were experiencing is that um, there was always a need for something or someone to mediate God's presence, the presence of greatness, to God's people. Um, there was always the need for something to, to stand between God and between people. And the question we should ask ourselves is why? And the answer to that question is answered at the very beginning of the Bible, the first two chapters of Genesis, there was no mediation required, okay? God had direct personal communion with people. God dwelled with his people in the garden. And as the story goes that we're also familiar with, humanity rebels against God and immediately there's a barrier between God and us. We call the barrier sin. Um, do you remember, do you remember what Adam and Eve did immediately upon God discovering, discovering their rebellion against him? They hid from God. They covered themselves. And so from the garden on, uh, God evicts mankind out of the garden and says, you can no longer come into my presence without something as a buffer. There has to be a medium. You can't just come to me anymore because you've now got a sin problem. And so, you know, you see in the, in the wilderness wanderings of the Old Testament people that, that God's presence showed up um, well, it showed up in a burning bush with Moses. Uh, God's presence showed up in a, in a fire and a cloud as it guided people, God's people through the wilderness. It showed up in a, in a mobile setup of sorts in the tabernacle in the wilderness. Later, Solomon would complete this project and it would be in the temple, specifically in the Holy of Holies, where God's presence would dwell. But there was always some sort of mediation between God and his people. But 
the reason um, God has been so inaccessible to us directly was because not only because of his holiness and our sinfulness, but also because it was pointing us to our need for that presence. Um, if you look in the passage, there were a couple of um, geographical locators that, that we're not usually familiar with. Uh, verse 6, uh, Ephrathah, as well as the fields of Jar. Um, kind of had to dig into this a little bit, but Ephrathah is a reference to Bethlehem, which is David's hometown. And so David's hometown is made reference to here. And then the fields of Jar, which I've got to write this one down. It's, it's a reference to Kiriath-Jerim, <laughs> short for Jar. Um, the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant, which is another, I want to talk about this for a moment, was another medium, another mediation piece that God had placed between his, his people and himself. The Ark of the Covenant was housed in the fields of Jar during the lost years. Um, this might be you know, review session for some of you, but I don't want to make any assumptions. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant uh, was a special piece of furniture that God had designed. It was a, a wooden box. It was about, it was almost four feet wide. It's about two feet tall, two feet deep. So not, you know, it's kind of just a little box. It was wooden. It was overlaid with gold. Uh, on top of it was the mercy seat with two cherubim angels looking onto the mercy seat. And inside of this furniture, there were three things. There were two stones of tablet which had the Old Testament law that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. Those two tablets were inside of the Ark of the Covenant, as well as Aaron's bud, uh, the uh, budding staff, was inside of this piece of furniture. And so here is this unique piece of furniture that really served almost as a historical and theological textbook for God's people. Wherever this ark went was where God's presence was, it would finally and ultimately end up in the temple that Solomon would complete. It was the only piece of furniture that would go into the Holy of Holies. So the place where God's presence fully was, was this ark. And so what it began to show was that God's people had a need for the presence of God. And the problem was they had no way to be confident that God would give them access to himself. You know, the, the spectacle of the temple was always a religious priest-led type of event. Animal sacrifices, cleansing rituals, all of these things that did not ever give God's people direct access to himself But the silver lining that Solomon sees in this passage when he says this, for the sake of your servant David, he's talking to God, he's singing to God, for the sake of your servant David, don't turn away the face of your anointed one. And so that begins to show us this confidence that we can have in the promise that God said he would be with his people. So if that's the need for the promise, well, then what's the foundation of it? Let's look at the foundation of the promise in verses 11 and 12. Um, my, my day off of work is on Fridays. And uh, on Thursday nights, uh, actually most every night of the week, but 
seems to be always Thursday, when we're putting our boys to bed, um, they will always ask us, they're, tr- they're beginning to get a sense of time and the days of the week and all that kind of thing. They'll always ask us, Dad, Dad what, what day is tomorrow? And um, really, almost every Thursday night, they'll ask me, Dad, what day is tomorrow? And I've learned their, their ways. Um, they're going to do two things when I answer that question. The first thing I'll say is, tomorrow's Friday. And the, the immediate word that comes out of their mouth is pancakes. We do pancakes on Friday. I'm committed to that. Heather reminds me that the boys are always looking for those on Fridays. And so pancakes on Friday. But the second part that they always ask me is, what are we going to do tomorrow? And I've learned my lesson the hard way uh, by telling them that we're going to do something and we don't end up doing it. So I have, as of recently, made the commitment as a dad that I am always going to under-promise and over-deliver. Always. That is my new status quo is like, I'm going to say as little as possible because I don't know what tomorrow is going to bring always. And so my new answer when they ask me, dad, what are we going to do tomorrow is, boys, we'll see. And Jaden, the smart potential lawyer in our family says, dad, what exactly does we'll see mean? And so, you know, like he's just very, just inquisitive right now. And he asked me, what does we'll see mean? And really it's, it's me not wanting to make a commitment to tomorrow, Jaden, is the answer to that. Um, and my point is, God is like that in that he only makes promises that he is going to keep. He does. Uh, God always um, delivers on his promises, And this text is going to show us that, I hope, really in a very clear way. Um, So so let's just look at just really simply what was the promise. The promise was verse 11. The end of verse 11 says that one of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. Um, It was a reiteration of a promise that was made in that chapter in 2 Samuel that I mentioned where God said it this way. He said, and your house, this is speaking to David, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So that's the promise. The promise is that God would establish David's line, physically and genealogically speaking, but more so eternally and kingdom speaking. So let's pause there. And I want to remind you, do you remember why God's people actually had an earthly king? God's people had a king because they asked for one, right? They wanted to be like the other nations around them. They saw the other nations and they said, they all have earthly rulers and we want one. And so instead of having God as their king, they chose earthly rulers. Uh, If you want to know how that went, read the book of Judges. Uh, Judges is a cycle of bad king after bad king after bad king. And so God was giving his people what they wanted, when in reality, what they should have wanted was God to be their king. So here's the problem that the Israelites were facing and we continue to face, is that a human king could not fully and finally fulfill and govern God's people the way they should be governed. Uh, The bigger problem for this passage, though, is verse 12. The foundation of the promise 
is actually conditional. Look at verse 12. Verse 11, let me read that again. So here's the promise. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne if, if your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I will teach them. That's a big if. If you and your future generations obey me, I will fulfill this promise. Now that's problematic for us because do we obey God perfectly? No. Did the generations following David and Solomon follow God perfectly? No. And so what God is showing us is that the work of obedience would finally recover the problem of sin by giving them the righteousness that they needed to be back in God's presence. And it's problematic. And so look at the second half of the song. Let's look at verses 13 to 18 as we look at the future and then in parentheses, the fulfillment of the promise in verses 13 through 18. Um, It jumps out at me as I read the passage, that everything's in the future tense. I will do this, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this. Uh, The promise, being conditional, says, okay, if the generations after you obey me as your king, then I will do this. I will dwell with them, verse 14. I will bless them, verse 15. I will satisfy them, verse 15. I will clothe them with salvation, verse 16. I will make a horn to sprout. That's a reference to power and rule. I will clothe their enemies with shame and crown my people with shine, verse 18. So the question that we ought to be asking of this passage is that how could God fulfill his promise to be with us if we didn't keep those conditions? If we didn't do what God has told us to do to obey him perfectly, then how can God keep his promise to be with us? Is he going to just turn a blind eye to justice and just give us the benefit of the doubt? You know, you gave it the good old college try, um, so I'm just going to do it anyway. The answer is no. Um, God isn't going to just undermine justice by offering us some plea deal, you know, like, you know, a little bit of purgatory or a little bit of, you know, just kind of probationary period. Maybe if you do good enough for this amount of time, maybe then I'll be with you. No. So how can God fulfill this promise or can he? And the answer is he can, and he did it by sending someone who could and would obey him. Um, the only way that Psalm 132 can be good news for us is that when we see that it points us towards a newer, better, and greater David. That it points us towards someone who could do what this promise obligated us to do. There's a passage in the New Testament. I'm going to turn there. You don't have to turn there. Um, kind of closing with this this morning. In the book of Acts, chapter 2, the book of Acts is, um, this is the sequel to Luke's gospel. And so, for those of you new to the Bible, uh, the book of Acts would have been written after Jesus' life. He had already died, and now he's resurrected. And in Acts, chapter 2, so so Jesus is no longer uh, on earth. He's now ascended 
to heaven above. In Acts chapter 2, something climactic happens in that God's Spirit, uh, flaming tongues, the day of Pentecost, if you're familiar with the Bible, that's, that's what's going on. In Acts chapter 2, uh, the Apostle Peter preaches a sermon on this song, really, showing us how Jesus fulfills it for us. And um, I don't preach as good as Peter, so I'm just going to read some of his section of his sermon. Um, You can just listen along. It's not lengthy. In Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 29, listen to what Peter says about Psalm 132, David and the greater Jesus. He says this, Brothers, may I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being, therefore, a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of all that, we are witnesses. Um, in that little statement of, of Peter saying that Jesus fulfilled Psalm 132 is a lot of assumptions. And let me, let me clear up some of those assumptions. Um, what, what Peter is saying is that in the arrival of Jesus on this land, in the flesh, Jesus became what you and I could not become. Um, He became a perfectly obedient son. Uh, It was the will of the Father for Jesus to come here to not only live a perfect life, but to die the death that should have come to us. And so in Jesus' earthly life and ministry, we see a mirror of what we were supposed to be like. We see a man who loved fully and who gave everything of himself. We see a man who was lowly and was born in humble conditions, a man who sought no fame for himself, a man who pursued the outsider, the outcast, the sick, the distraught. We see a man who was supposed to live, who lived like we were supposed to live, but then he died a death. He absorbed the death of the believer, the person who did not do that, who did not obey the way God commanded us to obey. He took the wrath of a just God upon himself fully. He took the cup and he drank all of it to the bottom, finished the cup. The work was done. And Peter is saying, because Jesus is resurrection from death to life, he's saying the work is finished, that the promise has now been fulfilled. And so, so here's the consequence for you and I today, that the believer, the one who, who, I love the way Rick did it in our liturgy today, the one who has transferred all of their trust and who has made Christ, the reference point of their life, 
and who is no longer believing that they in and of themselves can earn this righteousness. For the person who's doing that gets credit for everything Jesus did, everything. And so his record of righteousness is literally credited to your account. That the clothing of salvation is the righteousness that Jesus earned for you. And what that does, it changes everything. In the song, Rock of Ages, here's how it puts it. It says, be of sin the double cure. And the double cure is this. You are saved from wrath and you are made pure. You are saved from the just wrath of a holy God because what Jesus did for you, the believer. And you are made pure because he lived the life that you will never, ever be able to live. And that's good news for the believer today. Let me finish the rest of Peter's sermon briefly. He continues on in verses 32 to to 36, and he says this, that this Jesus, God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, and therefore being exalted at the right hand of God, he's on the throne, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So, what Psalm 132 was giving us a taste of, a little shadow, the presence of God, God no longer needs a building. He no longer needs an ark. He no longer needs fires in the bush, clouds by day, fires by night. God's presence now dwells in the believer. God's presence, his very fullness of the living God lives inside of everyone who's trusting in his son. And so now, no longer do we need the tablets of stone where the law is written and and put in the ark, but now the law is written on the hearts of God's people and put inside of us. So the question that I want to leave you asking is how do we respond to that? And and that question is, is what Peter answers again in his sermon when he told them how to respond, and he tells us how to respond in verse 37. He says this, this is Peter closing up the sermon. He says, now when they heard this, this is the crowd listening to this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Then he concludes in verse 39, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. To repent and believe. Repent, one of those words that has been so disingenuously tossed around and misused, but let me, let me rephrase it and maybe some fresh language for you. 
To repent is to remove yourself from the throne of your life. You see, the work that God is doing in his church and in his people now is the work of dethroning people who think they can rule their own lives. And I would guess in a group this size, this large, that there are people here who at the very center of their life, sitting on the throne is self. (laughs) And I would say that that's most of us on many days, but there are some today who believe that that is all right, that ruling your own life is really the way it's supposed to be. And I would say to you today that if you are willing, maybe even for the first time, or maybe this is something you did as a child and you've got away from now, if you are willing to dethrone yourself and transfer all of your trust to the work of this one, that your life will not only work better, but you'll experience freedom and joy like you never have before. Because there is no other king like this king, (laughs) a king full of grace and a king full of mercy. And for the believer today, same scenario, dethrone yourself. You are not the point of reference for your life. Christ is. The promise today is for you and for your children and for all who are far off for everyone who the Lord God calls to himself. Let's pray. Father, I I admit that wanting to be in your presence is not always the first thing or the priority of my life. And so, Lord, we pray that you would first and foremost stir for us the desire to be in your presence. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see how Jesus has done everything to secure our safety in your presence, that we no longer have to fear that your your wrath or your anger or your disappointment in us is gonna flare up and just burn us. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see the clothing of righteousness that Jesus offers us and how that he has secured a way for God's people to be in God's presence. And Lord, help us even today for the first time, some of us to transfer our trust from ourselves to you. Lord, would you do that work? We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.